This is the Theology Matters podcast. I'm Josh Malden, your host. I'm here today with a very special guest who I'm honored to be joining us, who is Peter Paris. I'm going to give a bit about your, your bio, Peter, before welcoming you to start uh, the discussion. Peter Paris is the Elmer Homerichhausen Professor Emeritus of Christian Social Ethics at Princeton Theological Seminary. He has also taught at Vanderbilt Divinity School, Howard University, Union Theological Seminary in New York, Harvard University, and Trinity Theological Seminary in Ghana. Dr. Paris was born and brought up in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia. He earned his BA and BD degrees from Acadia University and his BA and his MA and PhD degrees from the University of Chicago. He's been the recipient of many honors, including four honorary Doctor of Divinity degrees from Acadia, McGill, Lehigh, and Lafayette universities, respectfully. He's ordained in the African United Baptist Association in Nova Scotia. He's the author of many books. I'll just mention a few Black religious leaders, Unity and Diversity, The Social Teaching of the Black Churches, The Spirituality of African Peoples, The Search for a Common Moral Discourse, Virtues and Values, The African and African American Experience. He has also edited the history of the Riverside Church in the city of New York and Religion and Poverty, Pan-African Perspectives. Dr. Paris has been elected to the presidencies of the following uh, national organizations, the American Academy of Religion, the Society of Christian Ethics, and the Society for the Study of Black Religion, and the American Theological Society. Dr. Paris, I'm proud to say, is also a CTI member. Uh, His 1995 book, The Spirituality of American Peoples, was completed, I noticed in the the preface, uh, Peter, um, at CTI. I think the final drafting you mentioned was completed uh, there back in the 90s. Uh, In a moment, I want to say talk a bit more with you about that particular book. But first, um, just as a way to start us out, I want to say welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for being on it. And maybe to start out, could you speak a bit about your own intellectual background and how you became interested in theology in the beginning? Yeah, so thank you very much, Josh. I'm honored to to be um, talking with you this morning. Myself, I guess. <laughs> um, the um, I was um, I was born and brought up in New Glasgow, Nova Scotia, in a segregated uh, black uh, community, and uh, that is the beginning of my um, my, my journey. <laughs> and I went to a predominantly white school, um, and I sort of did well there. But I lived in two worlds. I lived in the world of my community and family, and then I went out of that world uh, into uh, the white world every day uh, to school, hmm. and, uh, and that shaped me in, in in various ways, as you can as you can imagine. Hmm. Um, I um, didn't I, I I didn't become a member of the church. There was a black church in our community. The only institution that we had uh, that we called our own and uh, it was the center of our community even though ironically it was located in a predominantly white area hmm. uh, where, where and it was across the street from the elementary school where I went uh, to, to. Uh, it uh, 
it, 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 it played a central role in my life, even though I was not a member of it until I was near graduation uh, and I wanted to go into the ministry. And, um, and I felt that I needed to be baptized before I went to theological education. The Baptists don't uh, get baptized early in life, but uh, mm-hmm. later in life. And so I was, I was 18 when I got baptized. And, uh, and that's, uh, but I, I wanted to study uh, for the ministry, but I wanted uh, to be uh, a, a minister that was concerned and deeply engaged in the search for justice and, uh, and racial justice in particular. And I didn't see a great deal of that amongst the various clergy I knew, um, but um, I did, there was one clergyman, Reverend Dr. Uh, W.P. Oliver, who was married to a cousin of mine, and he was in Halifax, and he was, from my point of view, what a minister should be. (laughs) A person who was a community leader, uh, spokesman for um, for the people, for the issues, of, of social justice. And, and I always felt that if I were to be a minister, I would be, I would try to be like him. Mm. Uh, but then I decided that also as I finished um, seminary at Acadia University, I decided before that actually, that I didn't want to be a, um, a minister in the typical way. <laughs> And the, uh, because most people uh, in my environment who became clergy, they, when they got to church, they were there for 40 years and then they retired. Hmm. And, uh, I didn't like the, um, the, uh, the outcome <laughs> and, uh, or even the process. And uh, so it was in, uh, and, and, and it, was, it was an evangelical oriented uh, denomination, the Baptists were, and uh, focusing a great deal on the salvation of the soul and uh, after death. And, and really, the only thing that kept us young people at the time in the church was the Young, uh, young People's Organization, uh, the BYPU, the Baptist Young People's Union, and uh, joined that when I entered high school. And, uh, and that was sort of my place in the church. And, uh, and I grew into leadership positions there, mm-hmm. both locally and uh, in the association. And the associations, the Baptist associations in Nova Scotia were organized geographically, but yet uh, ours was organized racially. Um, and it was, over a hundred years old, and um, at the time, and uh, and it was the only racial, uh, racially organized association, <laughs> but yet it was functioned almost like a convention for us, even though we were an association within a uh, larger white uh, convention, and uh, we never really took the convention that seriously, because we had very little contact with it. Uh, but most of our churches 
had been built um, with monies uh, from the Home Mission Board. And, uh, and Reverend Oliver, again, uh, when he became pastor in the mid-30s, uh, he was bent on trying to get the Black Baptist churches uh, self, become self-sufficient financially because he felt that being dependent upon the larger white denomination was really a serious restraint on us. And, uh, and, uh, and, and so that was one of, one of his aims, which I think was a very good aim because by gaining independence, uh, financial independence, uh, we could exercise our autonomy uh, much more than, 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 than previously. And uh, that's a long story in itself, mm-hmm. one could go into. Um, but, um, but so uh, when uh, at seminary, I became disillusioned in many ways uh, with the end result of the focus mainly on some, from my point of view, otherworldly things like the salvation of the, of the soul. Mm, or going to heaven, this kind of thing. Yeah. And, Exactly to the world, yeah. Yes, and but I didn't know how um, how to do anything other than that hmm. Hmm. until I met the student Christian movement uh, as a, as an undergraduate and then as a graduate, and I participated in that regularly, and that became the salvation for me in the sense of keeping me in in theological education, because the student Christian movement was deeply interested in how to relate the gospel uh, of Christ to the, um, to the world, um, uh, the world's problems, uh, both locally and uh, nationally and internationally. And it was a, an international organization uh, founded uh, by um, John R. Mott, uh, who was uh, a very, very great uh, lay person uh, and leader. And uh, actually, eventually, you know, in 1946, he received the Nobel Prize uh, for his work in, 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 in student work, mm. and work in founding the World Student Christian Federation with its offices in Geneva. And, uh, and so he was oriented towards helping students, inspiring students, not only in the United States and in Canada, but around the world uh, to take seriously their religion and their spirituality and to apply it in the search for justice and peace uh, in the world. And, uh, and so hundreds and hundreds of organizations were founded around the world globally, and uh, and by eighteen, uh, and but they were they were bent on on evangelizing the world, making the world Christian, uh, thinking that that would be a way in which uh, so-called brotherhood uh, could take place. Uh, that if we were all Christians, uh, we would all be in the language of the day brothers. And uh, it was a simple kind of thing, but yet it was a mm. powerful message. And hundreds and thousands of people uh, joined up. And, uh, and 
the student Christian movement was always concerned and uh, and uh, with um, with power and authority, and 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 they wanted it was going to be a student organization that should be run and controlled by students. Uh, but if you needed full time staff, then the staff, whether they would be clergy or whatever, would have to um, take their orders from the students. And the students uh, met national conference to set policy uh, once a year and uh, in the national office and the world office were fundamentally run by students. But they mm -hmm. were the, 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 the final appeal was to students, which I, um, I've always respected very highly and, uh, and, and, and think that because it's because authority and the authority in all organizations is an it's a very very important and basic thing as to who has that authority, because the people who have the authority uh, then are bent on maintaining it as long as they possibly can, and once you have lost it, uh, you have lost it. And the idea is how do you have how do you have uh, um, how do you do this theologically? And uh, the students realized that they had to be dependent upon senior people who had done uh, more study than they, of course, in the field of theology. Um, but yet those people would be invited in and as guests of the students uh, to, to explicate uh, the gospel as they saw it. And then the students would try to apply it uh, to their own environment and uh, and the environment and the issues that they as they saw uh, round about them. And at that time, when I so when 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 I um, uh, uh, graduated from the, from seminary, I then went to work with the Student Christian Movement of Canada, and I was at the University of Alberta as a general secretary there. Um, and it was in, in the student Christian movement that I met my, my, my first wife, uh, who passed away sadly uh, um, 25 years ago. Um, but uh, she had uh, worked with the student Christian movement in Canada at the University of Alberta. Uh, she was the first student to be on the staff. I took a year off on the staff of the national um, uh, body uh, in Toronto. And she spent a year in India uh, studying at the Women's College uh, in what was then called Bombay, it's now called Mumbai. And, uh, and so that gave her a tremendous world experience. And I met her after I returned from a 10 week uh, study tour in Nigeria. And so that was the beginning of my international uh, um, uh, experience. And, um, and then uh, three years later, uh, we were married and, uh, and we were four years later, I mean, four, in the fourth year, uh, we, um, we accepted an invitation to come to Nigeria to uh, work with the student Christian movement there as a traveling secretary. And I was happy that, that I was working with an organization that was not, um, uh, controlled in any way from abroad. Uh, it was uh, the early days of uh, independence 
and uh, that was very important. The So Student Christian Movement in Nigeria had been formed by uh, a person by the name of Sir Francis Ibium, um, and he had studied uh, medicine at the University of Edinburgh in the 1930s. And at the end of his studies, he decided, which was shocking to the people of Edinburgh, that he wanted to be a medical missionary. Hmm. And uh, they had never heard of such a thing. An African is supposed to have missionaries come to them <laughs> um, from abroad, but not to be missionaries themselves. <laughs> and uh, so he kept pressing the issue that that was what he was called to be. Mm. And so lo and behold, he became a mm. missionary, the first African missionary um, on the continent <laughs> uh, mm. from, from Europe. But he brought the student Christian movement to Nigeria. Mm. And, uh, and that was very comforting to me for many years, so many years later uh, to come there and to work um, uh, on, with a board that was my uh, um, uh, uh, my bosses, and he was the president of the Student Christian Movement, and uh, what a joy that was! What a great, great job! Well, that's fascinating, and and maybe in a moment, I'd also like to hear about uh, how being at the University of Chicago for your for your PhD uh, influenced your trajectory and and who you who were your mentors there. But even maybe even before that, a broader question. Um, given this, all, all your background, all the work you've done, all the books you've written, all the teaching you've done, many uh, leading institutions, where, where do you see as the role that theology can play in speaking to important social issues uh, in the broader society? And what do you see as the impact of theology? Well, I, I've always seen theology as being the study, well, the study of God. <laughs> And since we do not have direct access uh, to God's mind, uh, we can only uh, decide what God uh, um, intends and what God's uh, um, perspective is uh, through uh, our own sense of goodness, our own sense of justice, and, uh, and goodwill and peace and so forth. And how God has been interpreted by God's people and, uh, and more authoritatively uh, by those people uh, whose stories about God and their experience of God are in the Bible. And the Bible is a very complex um, uh, uh, books, uh, uh, library of books, and uh, written over a long period of time, and uh, and uh, engaged in various types of writings and so forth, but all for the sake of explicating the human perspective on God, and that some parts of that, large parts of it, the whole thing has become authoritative. Uh, by virtue of the works of the various church councils and so forth um, over the ages. Uh, but yet it is still problematic. And it's always problematic to impute our sense of goodness to God. And uh, sometimes you have people doing that on the side, the racial issue, for instance, during the Civil War, uh, uh, people appealed to God on both sides of the war. Uh, the unions 
people and the Confederates. And the question is, uh, what is uh, what is the position of God on the issues that were at stake? And uh, that has been so in relationship to so many other wars and conflicts in life. So it seemed to me that uh, that the Bible cannot be uh, uh, um, dealt with uh, by itself. It has to be dealt with in conversation uh, with the uh, with the world at large and all the various parts of the world and uh, and our experiences with it, uh, with the economic, uh, the political, the social, the cultural, the aesthetic, the environmental, and so forth, and 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 the various types of knowledge that um, uh, that are required to understand any and all of those parts. Uh, that all has got to be brought into conversation uh, with, um, with, 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 the, with the understandings of God in the scriptures and, and, and elsewhere. And so I, um, uh, I, I, one of the reasons why I went into ethics was that I didn't want to do ethics in a philosophy department because the philosophy department was not paying much of any attention to um, to theology, but yet I wanted some philosophy, and the the resources that philosophy would have to to to, to offer, and uh, and uh, because the 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 the, um, uh, the rational dimension of our lives uh, has got to be brought into conversation with uh, faith uh, that we have received from God. And, uh, and so the issues of faith and reason, or reason and science, or science and religion, <laughs> um, all of these things are, are, are they, they go together in dialogue uh, with one another. And so I wanted to be in a place, an environment where philosophy was taken seriously, where theology was taken seriously, and uh, where the social sciences, because I was, I really am attracted and have always been attracted to the prophetic dimension of religion, which Jesus stands in as, as, uh, as from my point of view, the, the, the last of the prophets. And that's debatable by some people, <laughs> but nevertheless, for me, that's what it is. And, and, but he was in the prophetic tradition and the prophetic tradition gives primacy uh, to the poor. And, um, and, and to their relief to, from poverty, their liberation. Um, and, uh, and that scene in the Exodus event, um, uh, God uh, befriending slaves. That was very important to me and my tradition. And we come from, uh, from a tradition of slavery in this country and, uh, and bondage. And we've no, never really been able to recover from that in a full and complete way. And, uh, and the continent from which our ancestors came uh, has been, uh, still suffers from that event, the, um, the, the, the enslavement of African peoples and the colonization uh, of, the, of the continent almost completely. And, uh, and the question is uh, that all of that means that African peoples have, have, have really a good sense of, um, uh, of, of God because God 
is the source of their dignity. The, their dignity was denied them and trampled upon uh, by humans uh, for centuries. And, uh, and they discovered that, uh, that, that they were not what the slave owners and the colonizers said they were, but they were whom God said they were. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that is, they were children of God and therefore um, imbued with, uh, with tremendous, um, tremendous uh, dignity. And, and, mm. and that should not, be, uh, should not lead to pride and the sins of pride and thinking of oneself as being better than others, though some of that has happened in the Christian faith as well, where Christians have thought of themselves as, 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 as better than non-Christians, uh, which is uh, a denial of the fact that non-Christians are also children of God, <laughs> and, uh, and therefore the brotherhood that uh, J.R. Mott and others talked about uh, in the sisterhood um, uh, are, um, are, are universal. Mm-hmm. And uh, so all of that has seems to me that is a muddled way of talking about the relationship of theology and ethics or religion and morality. And if one tries to divorce one from the other, one really uh, renders uh, the, the, the one uh, a deficit. Right. And uh, and so 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 that's that's why I went to the University of Chicago because they had a program that was, from my point of view, ideal for me. It was called Ethics and Society in the Divinity School. <laughs> And, uh, and the Chicago was a place that the Divinity School was an integral part of the university. It was not to understood, understand itself as being a separate entity from the university, but it was integral. And so when I was there, every member of the faculty of the Divinity School had to uh, have a position or the ability to teach in the college, in the university. And, uh, and so you, if, if you didn't have that capacity to teach undergraduate students uh, in, in a subject matter, that uh, then it, uh, uh, you, you couldn't be on the hmm. faculty. Was and Charles Long there at the time? Charles Long was there. He was indeed there. And I'm glad you mentioned him. He mm-hmm. was... Uh, probably the first African professor uh, that I knew uh, ever, <laughs> and um, African-American. And uh, he was there, and Nathan Scott was there too. He was an, um, an African-American who wasn't as oriented towards the political side of things as, um, as some others might be. But, uh, but Charles Long was a very deep thinker in the history of religions, mm-hmm. and uh, which sort of went to the core of religious studies, uh, um, and uh, he was one one of the founders of that field uh, in uh, in the um, in the divinity school, and uh, I uh, was I, he was a, a dear friend, 
throughout his life uh, with me, and um, and I uh, was privileged to participate in his memorial service um, uh, a couple of years ago. Um, so, uh, so he was, uh, and a person who inspired me also with Howard Thurman hmm. was a person who was uh, giving a series of sermons at Easter time in Toronto when I was trying to decide where in the United States I would want to go because I had applied to the University of Chicago, to Harvard, to Yale, and to Drew, Drew because they all had programs that I thought would be uh, good for me, but I didn't know any of those schools. And so I went and talked with him and, uh, and, and, and he told me that, uh, and I was interested in Paul Tillich at that time, I had also been interested in Reinhold Niebuhr, and, uh, but I had taken a course in philosophy, philosophy of religion on Paul Tillich. And, uh, and so he said to me, I remember quite vividly, that if you want to uh, see uh, Paul Tillich, then go to Harvard, because uh, Paul Tillich was at Harvard at that time. But he said, if you want to understand Paul Tillich, Go to the University of Chicago. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Which is very lovely. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> and then, but yeah, Gibson Winter uh, mm -hmm. was, or he had just published The Suburban Captivity of the Churches. Hmm. And, uh, that was an eye opener to me because. Uh, the, the, sub, the suburban captivity of the churches meant that the churches had become absorbed into the cultural milieu of the suburbs. <laughs> and, uh, and that that was a disaster <laughs> uh, for Christianity. Mm. Uh, but uh, allow itself to, to, to allow that to happen. And uh, so he was a, a very... Uh, he was also the founder of the Detroit Industrial Mission before he got there. And that was, uh, he had a real concern for the issues of justice for labor and, uh, and, and, and the labor unions. And, uh, and in the student Christian movement, I was very much engaged with them. We would have summer work camps, work study camps, and uh, in Toronto and elsewhere in Canada and uh, work in industry and then have conversations in the evening, uh, Bible studies, and then conversations with uh, union members about the problems that the laborers, laborers have still even with their unions and, uh, and, and what both internal to the unions and then the problems that they would have uh, with management, and so that became a a, a real a real basic concern of the student Christian movement in Canada. One of the fundamental issues there, not only in coal in 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 in, in factories, but also in coal mines and uh, and, and the spin-offs of all of that um, for mental health and for physical health and, uh, and and family health and so forth. <laughs> yeah. You're now a, a naturalized uh, U.S. citizen. 
But yeah. I wanted to ask, do you see ways in which your Canadian origin gives you a distinctive perspective on the United States and on sort of maybe we maybe we can talk about racial justice in the United States as well as the African-American church in the U.S.? It doesn't give me any great advantage, um, apart from the fact that um, I see so many connections uh, and that being an African Canadian and an African American is virtually the same kind of experience. Uh, the African, uh, uh, the, the, the so-called underground, underground Railroad that uh, brought some of the first uh, Africans to central Canada um, was similar uh, and the way the people were treated in, in central Canada was similar to the way they were treated in Eastern Canada. And we did not, our ancestors did not go there by the Underground Railroad to Nova Scotia and to New Brunswick um, and to Prince Edward Island. But, um, but we went with the British uh, after the War of Independence. And there was a military strategy in the part of the British to, um, to woo the slaves away from uh, their owners and to serve them. And in return, they promised them uh, um, a free passage uh, up the Atlantic seaboard to Nova Scotia or to uh, Jamaica. I always felt that I got on the wrong boat because <laughs> 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 I've never really have liked the cold that much. <laughs> but nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, the um, uh, we did go to to to, uh, to Nova Scotia in 1782. Uh, about 3,000 blacks uh, arrived with um, several thousands of whites as well, and the whites were not very pleasant to the blacks. Of course, they in blacks they viewed them as slaves, and even though they were no longer slaves, they still viewed them as slaves. And uh, and so their first settlements in Nova Scotia. Uh, they were they were set afire. They were burnt down, mm. and so forth. And so mm. the blacks in Nova Scotia appealed to England for redress. And uh, England was just beginning a colony in West Africa in Sierra Leone. And they said, "Well, maybe your people would like to go to Sierra Leone." <laughs> and uh, and so they the people voted on that. It's a long story, of course. And uh, and so in 1792, nine years later, um, a, um, a, a several shiploads of blacks uh, left um, uh, Nova Scotia for Sierra Leone. There was 1,100 of them actually that went to Sierra Leone. And, uh, and they became the settlers there for, in Freetown, called Freetown. Um, and, uh, uh, the first of the um, British um, co colonies, uh, colonization period in 1792. And then after that, in 1820, the United States pattern, uh, it's uh, similar um, colonization in Liberia mm -hmm. uh, after the, the one in Sierra Leone. Mm -hmm. So our, our connect, and then our, the first ministers in our churches in uh, Nova Scotia and so forth, were, were Americans, of course. How could it be otherwise? 
I mean, right. they were ex-slaves and so forth from the U.S. And thereafter, uh, Canada, Nova Scotia kept drawing upon uh, people to come uh, from um, from the United States uh, to serve the churches there. And that happened a good deal until, yeah. How would you, uh, I've just been re recently reading your book, two of your books, uh, The Spirituality of African Peoples and a kind of companion volume, Virtues and Values, African and African-American Experience, and thinking about the way there that you're drawing on a common moral discourse of African thought and Af uh, African-American thought, it made me think, how did your years uh, living in Nigeria, you, you mentioned earlier that you spent a few years there um, early on in your career, is there a way in which those years um, helped to facilitate this work? Yes, they, they, they did indeed, and it took me um, uh, almost 30 years to figure out how to deal with that experience because I couldn't, I didn't want, I, I wanted to deal with it and I couldn't figure out how to deal with it. Um, uh, the experience that I had, because Nigeria was just emerging from, um, from colonialism and, uh, and, and the Christian Council of Nigeria that I was close to at the time uh, had published a book called Christian Responsibility in an Independent Nigeria. And, uh, and that opened up, that was the whole mission for the, for the church. Uh, what is our responsibility in an independent Nigeria? Because prior to that, Christianity was a foreign religion that came with colonization and it came alongside of it. Um, and, uh, and, and protected by it and so forth. And the, and the, the Christian schools uh, paid no attention to African traditions. Uh, They're all in the, the language was what used to be was, was English. Uh, and uh, people had to know, learn enough English by the time they got to the sixth grade that they could do their education in English because the teachers were all English speaking and all education was in English and the indigenous languages were not taught in the schools at all. And uh, the question was then, how do we, how do Africans, uh, how do you say Nigerianize the church? <laughs> because the church hmm. was virtually a, um, an English church, <laughs> whether it was Methodist or it was American or Baptist or whatever the denomination was, it was foreign. And the question was, how do you make it uh, our own? And there were no, at that time, in the late 1950s, like the early 1960s, uh, there were no, uh, no Bibles published in indigenous languages. Um, and, uh, and so the first Bibles that we got, we got started, you know, there was the book of John in Yoruba or in Igbo or something like that. Or, uh, it, uh, so it was um, that process of Africanizing Christianity uh, was a similar process that was undertaken in the U.S. during the 1960s uh, through the Black uh, theology movement of how do we uh, indigenize um, the black church? 
Mm -hmm. uh, even though the black church, since it was separate from the white churches, and it had its own leadership from the beginning, uh, it was in many ways already uh, Africanized, uh, but it was not, but the, the clergy uh, uh, were, um, well, at least after the 1940s or so, the clergy were all educated pretty much in, um, in, in white seminaries, except for Howard uh, University. I guess uh, ITC began um, uh, in the late 50s, I guess, an interdenominational. Mm -hmm. uh, in Atlanta, right. In Atlanta, right. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then there was um, uh, a couple of other schools, but, but yet they were, they were giving undergraduate degrees, not Howard, right. But right. Howard's the only place where you could get a master's degree or the equivalent of a master's degree. Uh, in, but otherwise, people were taking um, an, an, an undergraduate degree with a major in theology. Right. And uh, then that would uh, give them, uh, apart from some Bible schools and so forth, that would give them some, um, some tr enough training to right. lead a uh, but um, but things were were not because you didn't have the language problem uh, here because the African languages had been stamped out of the people here. Uh, the uh, the but you you had um, you had a cultural problem because the 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 culture of the black community was different in many ways from the culture in the, uh, in, in the white community. And, uh, but in Canada, we had the, uh, our music, for instance, our records and all that sort of thing, all came from the United States. Hmm. And so we in Nova Scotia, um, you know, our, um, through our, our the, the music, uh, Harlem was very important to us. Harlem was the basic, the basis for us in terms of uh, of, of our music. Hmm. Uh, I was I was really struck reading your 2012 uh, the address you gave as president of the American Theological Society, which is published in um, oh, really? a book you edited on American uh, African American theological ethics. Yeah, I was struck by how many of all the spirituals you quoted there, and yes. uh, the spiritual tradition and they're so moving. And one of the things that struck me about it too, was how even my own uh, Christian uh, religious upbringing, how many of those spirituals were we saying all the time? I mean, yeah. probably three out of four or four out of five of them were songs I grew up singing in a Methodist church. Right. Right. Uh, right. Just the way in which the, the, the black church tradition is part of American history. Right. American right. Religious history. Right. Yeah. Right. right. And for a long time, that was just not recognized, I think. And I think that a lot of time for a long time, uh, the maybe only a couple of the spirituals would have been in uh, the hymn books, the right. drum hymn books. And, uh, and later, I think after the 1960s, more and more churches wanted to learn more, more white churches. Mm -hmm. I, I remember 
when I was in Nashville, Tennessee, our church there received a, uh, a, a letter from the Catholic uh, priest uh, in one of the churches asking if they could borrow one of our hymn books because they wanted to teach uh, some of the music uh, mm. to their congregation <laughs> um, because they just felt that that was something that they the congregation was lacking and they needed. Mm. So that was so so we, we sent a Baptist <laughs> songs of Zion over to the Catholic Church. They taught us the Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure they were very enriched by that. There's so many things I, we could talk about. I think we could go yeah. on for for hours, uh, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm reluctant. I, I'm I'm watching the clock for your time. I, I do have one, at least one more question I like to ask, which was during a CTI webinar this past spring with J. Cameron Carter, yeah. a theologian uh, and Black Studies scholar. You highlighted an ongoing debate uh, that went on between liberation theologian James Cone uh, and Charles Long, the historian of religion at the University of Chicago, who you just were talking about, a debate that centered on the question of the extent to which the Christian tradition is, maybe I'll frame it this way, and perhaps you want to change the way I frame it, but the extent to which the Christian tradition um, can be distinguished from or uh, excised from the, its legacies of white racism, uh, colonialism, slavery, and oppression, um, with long as I as I took it to be sort of saying, you know, it, it can't be really changed. It can't be, these two things cannot be um, differentiated. They're all, it's all completely there. And, and Cone wanting to create a Black theology that uh, moves beyond that, that kind of uh, racist uh, legacy. My question is, where, where do you see yourself on that continuum? Well, I, I think I, I see myself able to um, embrace both Cone and, uh, and Long. Uh, Long has a problem, had a problem with theology per se. Um, and he said that, that theology was a European attempt to, um, to justify uh, its colonization of the world and uh, to take charge of the religious uh, element uh, mm. in world conquest. And that would be, and that Christianity would be the foundation, the religious foundation for that conquest, and that and it's it's um, uh, it's scholars and so forth be European uh, who would um, who, who would undergird that, um, and he felt that um, that Cone his argument that Cone uh, was oblivious to all of that, and Cone was continuing the um, unwittingly the um, the European. Uh, quest for world conquest. Mm. And uh, so that was a fundamental uh, division between those two. And I could see uh, what both were trying to do. Mm. Uh, both were, uh, the, the point that both were, were making. And I think that in many ways, uh, Cone, the, the Black church tradition, uh, even though it had difficulties with Cone's condemnation of the church in some sense for its unwillingness 
to think it's to to develop its own theology uh, because it wanted to be in continuity with the um, with the predominantly white uh, churches um, at the theological level, and uh, and so that and 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 and, and uh, um, Long was saying that um, that we just should should have done with uh, that 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 whole orientation, mm-hmm. and we should sort of go into the heart of the religious um, motif, um, and, uh, and 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 that is is underlies. Christianity underlies Islam, underlies, well, at least Christianity and and Islam. Well, we could go on forever, Peter. This is so fascinating. Maybe, maybe uh, sometime we'll come have you on again to talk more because there's so many more aspects of your, your work, your biography that I would like to talk to you about, but I also want to let you get off and get on with your day. But thanks you so much for joining me on the podcast, Peter Paris. Thank you. Thank you, Josh.